want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's coming flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, still hearts get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Uh, well, I have four more weeks of marathon training. <laughs> uh, I'm going to die. Yeah, that's okay though. Uh, what, what are you up to for your long? Uh, what am I up to? Um, well, I, I ordered some new shoes about a week ago, and they haven't actually shown up yet, so I haven't been able to do another long yet. Ah, okay, well... So, I'm I'm still only at a half. I'm just gonna... I'm basically, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna jump straight to 20, or I'm gonna try to. I'm that not, is a I'm bad idea. Do, well, considering before... Anyway, I do ludicrous things like this all the time, so it's really not that big a surprise. May, I don't know, maybe I'll cap it at 18, but definitely at least 18. Yeah, well, is, you, you need to... You pretty much need to do 18 and 20 before but you also need shoes so it's, it's, it's you have to keep yeah. us surprised <laughs> yeah oh. i've just been doing like little crappy runs in my crappy shoes and they still like yeah. after like five miles my ankles are dead yeah so, yeah not so good well you can't you, can't, you don't want to get injured four weeks out because it's just exactly kind of, it would waste all of the training you have done so yeah again uh looking forward to updates uh, elsewhere in tv this week i'm just gonna keep it to tv because if you expand out to the rest of the world, there's a bunch of really shitty stuff going on right now. So I'm going to keep it to TV, where there was some delightful developments in the past week, um, including Luther showing up, you know, as Obama's anger translator at the White, Ho White House Correspondents' Dinner. Thank you for alerting me to that, Simon. Uh, it was fantastic, as well as um, I just I, I accidentally caught some of the the Bruce Jenner interview. Uh, with Diane Sawyer. I didn't actually know that that was a thing that was happening or that Bruce Jenner was transitioning or any of this and, until I went to go watch The Amazing Race and ABC happened to be on. Um, when's the last time that happened for you? Uh, that, that you just, what specific? You stumbled upon something that you didn't intend to watch and actually watched it? <laughs> uh, that happens to me with new pilots a lot, actually. Huh. Um, with like things that you've told me are bad and then the tv just happens to be on i'm like well this is on i may as well watch it and i wouldn't have otherwise mm -hmm. but yeah n nothing like what you're talking about yeah so i was just you know because i had seen twitter talking about bruce jenner and i just figured it was another kardashians like reality show thing i didn't have any idea um so it was it was really it was a good interview it was really well done and very interesting and i look forward to following the story as it progresses, the various like interviews and things that continue to happen. But it's, it's, I, I just think it's wonderful that there is so much more awareness and representation of, of trans issues and trans people on TV right now. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. So, um, I look forward. I, I, I don't think I'm actually going to watch any of these reality shows that are popping up following trans people, <laughs> but uh, you like that they exist. But I very much like that they exist. Yes, absolutely. We heard from a few of you about your question of the week of what are the shows that you're 
looking forward to catching up with. And uh, we heard from Carl and from Mario. Carl says that he really wants to get caught up on Better Call Saul, Jane the Virgin, and Fortitude. I think those are some pretty solid choices. Simon, what do you think? Uh, yes, I think you will. I think you will find them to be most cromulent. <laughs> and then uh, Mario um, has says he's DVR'd the season of Broadchurch, but he hasn't watched it yet. Um, and he's going to do a Bloodline and season two of Orange is the New Black. So we haven't seen season two of Broadchurch um, because we're just not that interested. But I think we would recommend season two of Orange is the New Black uh, before Bloodline. Yes. Yes. <laughs> At least I definitely would. Yes. So I, I, yeah. So, so, but I look forward to your thoughts on those Mario once you have a chance and let us know what, uh, what you think of Broadchurch. Cause I've heard some conflicting opinions on that. So I would be curious what you think. Um, also at the end of the podcast, we should mention, of course, that we are talking with friend of the show, Kate Renabaum about justified. We're doing a just justified DVD shelf. So much fun to talk with her. I always love having Kate on the podcast. And before we send it to her, we can comedy. I just wanted to mention, um, we have the make you watch a thon number four coming up uh, at the end of the summer, or I guess not in the middle, I don't know, August. And so I, I'm throwing it out for a little support from the listeners because you know what you're going to have me watch, Simon. Uh, we've already discussed that. But I'm torn between a few options, and I'm open to suggestions if people have shows they think I should make Simon watch. They can be shows that are currently running. They can be, you know, all already done uh, and off the air. Um, but currently I'm I'm sort of going back and forth between filling in some gaps in my knowledge with either The Honeymooners, uh, you know, one of the all-time classic sitcoms, or um, Gunsmoke, because classic westerns are a major gap, major gap for me. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and then and then Blackpool, which is like a six episode, or maybe there's two series, so like a twelve episode musical from the UK starring David Tennant and David Morrissey, uh, that I'm very curious about. I have no idea if it's any good, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm could go either way with that. So classic comedy, classic western, or odd musical. And I would love for the listeners to chime in and let me know what you think I should make Simon watch. Do you have a preference at this point, Simon? Uh, I love short things, so Blackpool sounds fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, other than that, I, I as as usual with these things, the whole point is that I is that I surrender. We we ever is that everyone surrenders to everyone else. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually. If, if you got to pick, it would kind of defeat the purpose. Um, so yeah, let let us know what you think. Um, but now we should get into it because we have a, again another. We're, I look forward to so much the days when we get back to consistently being under two hours for the podcast. I think it will happen by the end of by the end of May, but who knows? Uh, anyway, so we're going to try for that again this week make a valiant effort at least um and so we're gonna take a break and come back with our week in comedy it was all a dream i used to read word up magazine something pepper and heavy d up in the limousine hanging pictures on my wall every saturday rap attack mr magic molly mall i let my tape rock till my tape pop smoking weed and bamboo sipping on private stock way back when i had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match remember rapping duke the hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Ron G, Brucey e. B, Kick Capri. Funk Master Flex, Love Bug Star Ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know. 
This week in comedy, we're going to talk a little bit about The Happiest Pilot, starring Samuel Beckett, Albert Camus, and Aloy... Alois? Alois? I'm going to go Aloysius, even though I know it's Aloy... Alzheimer. I put more thought into that title than I think they did. Um, Anyways, Inside Amy Schumer had its premiere last fuckable day. Fresh off the boat had its finale, So Chinese. Then we'll also talk Jane the Virgin, Chapter 18, The Comedians, The Red Carpet, Louis, Cop Story, Adventure Time, Jermaine, Children's Hospital, Just Like Cyrano de Bergerac, Veep, Data, and Silicon Valley, Bad Money. So there's a bunch of shows this week. But we're going to kick things off with the pilot to Happy-ish, which has been roundly criticized everywhere. And uh, Simon... Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes. It's not a, it's <laughs> yes. not a good show. Let's move on. No, uh, let's not move on yet. It's not good. Um, it's surprisingly not good. It's, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not as though Showtime has never made a bad show. Uh, but it's surprising that with this cast, uh, that everyone, that, that Showtime fought to make it real. Uh, you know, with, they... And they actually shot the PSH pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Like they 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 did it with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know. I remember seeing publicity uh, shots and things. Um, so they reshot with Coogan and obviously did some rewriting. And you know they they fought to, to make this show part of their lineup. And I don't know why. It's um, it's. I mean the the chief the the, the chief descriptor is smug. I think it's it's so. Uh, it's so self-satisfied. It's so superior, and it it tries to to throw a lampshade on it by by calling out certain characters, specifically the Coogan character, for for doing that. Um, and it just makes it worse somehow, <laughs> because it seems to think it knows better, but various aspects of its production makes it clear that it doesn't. Um, and you know, for a show about uh, about a guy who works in advertising. Uh, I actually thought the open uh, near the opening when in his voiceover he says "fuck Mad Men," uh, and then explains why. For a second, I actually thought that worked because I, I've heard people in advertising say, uh, or who used to be in advertising say that they that they couldn't watch Mad Men because they made it look too sexy and and exciting uh, when it, when it's actually just soul deadening and horrible. Uh, so I was like, oh, it's nice to see someone give voice to that, but <laughs> after even a little bit of thought, it's like, wow, there is so little artistry in this show. That in retrospect, having the words "fuck Mad Men" just seems like shooting yourself in both feet repeatedly. <laughs> More like, um, why I, you should be watching Mad Men? Just pop Mad Men in again instead of this one. And actually, the, the one I go to instead is instead of watching Happiest, y'all again reminder y'all should be watching Younger, which I know is said in the world of marketing. But there's enough, you know, if you're going to watch a show, be confused about millennials and, you know, get at least half of it wrong, watch Younger, because that's actually a good show. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't watch this. And the fact that they managed to misuse and waste a group of people as talented and funny as the cast here. I mean, Steve Coogan. He's wonderful. We love Steve Coogan. How do you use Steve Coogan so terribly? Well, and it's not all terrible. Like, there's some early scenes that are just him and his son and Catherine Hahn and Andre Royo shows up, and and those there's scenes some good are fine. Stuff, yeah. And then it, and you think, oh, and, I, and during those scenes, I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I mean, the very opening was awful. Um, but it's like I was thinking, okay, this is genial enough. It's you know kind of overwritten, but everyone is charming, and it's 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 not so bad. And then he gets to work, and it just nosedives, and. All the formal and stylistic devices seem like 
they would have been dated and hackneyed in like 1999. The, the fact that, you know, everything with, with him speaking directly to the camera and the voiceover and these fa fantasy interludes, um, which, you know, s s sometimes those work. Uh, we, we saw, you know, man seeking woman do that in, uh, to great effect. Uh, but, but that was really well integrated into its universe. And here it's just, you know, straight up dream sequences and things like that, that don't work. He humps a couch for some reason. It's like, Oh, come what? on. That's that's high comedy there. Comedy gold. Oh, yeah. God. But I, I think, you know, besides the fact that it's not funny and charmless, it's it's really the the sheer it's 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 the sheer superiority and the sheer feeling that like that, you know, when the, the many instances of other characters agreeing with with the, with the Coogan character for his for his vitriolic views or like or saying you're right but that's not the way the world is is like oh god we do not need this show now or ever can we officially call an end to the um this the type of uh oh god those stupid millennials or those pain in the ass millennials thing beat because every show has done it not every show but enough shows have done it and they you know some have done it well some have done it poorly no one's going to do a better job of mocking and insulting millennials than girls, okay? So we we understand that millennials can be frustrating, and especially to an older demographic who doesn't understand where they're coming from. We, like, we, we all get that. But c can we either make new ideas surrounding that or just let that go and move on? Let's find something else. There's, there, are, there is more. Let's find something else to talk about. Yeah, I mean... Uh, we we always talk about how comedy is hard and pilots are hard and it's it's possible this gets better, but if this is going to be the mold, it's not possible this gets better. <laughs> like, like let's just make that clear. I'm I'm definitely open to it becoming good, but this is not how it's going to become good. This is not going to be the blueprint. Yeah. Um. And the other the other thing that has me not particularly um excited about what might happen in the next few episodes is that the people who have seen the next two episodes friends of the show hate them and think it's not good so um apparently at least the first three are of a piece so if somebody in our audience is is watching this and makes it to the end of the season and really loves it by the end of the season drop us a line um otherwise there's too much tv I don't have time in my life to watch more because I, I could watch the next two. I do actually have access to those uh, screeners, but there's not enough time in my life, especially when I could be watching Inside Amy Schumer, which had its premiere last fuckable day. Now, we talked about this last week. We previewed the season, but now that y'all have seen it, how much do we love this premiere, Simon? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, 90, let's, let's just be upfront here and say that 90... Five percent of our love goes to Football Town Knights. Uh, well, like seventy thirty, because Last Fuckable Day is pretty great too. Well, the thing about okay, we'll, we'll get to Last Fuckable Day in a minute. Um, I just wanted to focus on Football Town Knights for a minute because it does something that all, many sketches can't do, which is that in the space of five and a half minutes, I was shocked to discover it was only five and a half minutes long when it went up on YouTube. Uh, it blends parody, homage social commentary, and absurd non-sequitur humor, and does them all well, which is kind of stunning. Yeah, it really does. Like, the there is a genuine love for Friday Night Lights in this five and a half minutes. 
absolutely you can tell you can see it there i mean the attention to detail and the uh (laughs) just like little details of performance like the way that josh charles like throws his hands up in the air and walks away from the the kid in the hospital you know like just like details of, of of how he does that are just so spot on for kyle chandler's performance as coach and uh and obviously there's a lot of enjoyment for for Tammy in there as well. The the Twitter love was also delightful to see. Gotta say, as a fan of all of those people, the all the the back padding that was going on between the Friday Night Lights and uh, Insane Mishima people was delightful this week. Um, but yeah, it, it, like you say, we have just uh, next to this whole discussion of of rape culture surrounding high schools and football teams. Um, you just have and the joke with Tammy is she likes white wine. That's it. Just that. Literally, the the entire segment is is two jokes, and it alternates between them. Well, maybe three if you count uh, the subversion of Coach's inspirational monologue. But yeah, yeah, it it knows they're really good jokes, and it knows that if it just alternates between them for five minutes, it'll be fine. Yeah, and it it really captures the tone with like the you know how the 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 football announcers and the the taglines underneath and the the difficult neighbors and everything like there's there's a there's details of performance and production that really put it over over the top I would say and yeah it's just been was absolutely delightful it felt like it was like a sort of a slow rollout on Twitter there was some immediate reaction but then it was like over the next few days as people caught up on YouTube. Um, so if that's going to be the model, I look forward to the next few weeks because people are going to be sharing the song that you really like from the second episode. People are going to be sharing that this week and next week people are going to be sharing the third, third episode as well. Um, I was able to share this, uh, football town lights with, um, uh, some of my friends and family who have never seen the show and obviously they didn't get all the things that I did, but they still could appreciate the overall message of it. Cause it's just so well done. Yes. Uh, then, of course, there is the last fuckable day sketch, which uh, was funny. Uh, it was almost disarming, though, how long segments of it didn't seem to have any jokes. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just it, it seemed it almost felt like just these actresses sitting around talking about their careers. <laughs> like it, it almost didn't feel like they were characters or like they were describing some fantastical situation, which, you know, is obviously the point of the sketch. I just love the Julie Louise Dreyfus has been like, hey, no one is more surprised than me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, right. Well, as long as we're just, we're talking this, about this episode, I should mention that I, I didn't really like the Amy Goes Deep segment um, really mm-hmm. much at all. And uh, as much as I'm not a, a huge fan of hashtag Slate pitches, um, there was a good piece on Slate about the, the issues with uh, with with that segment and how it didn't really contribute to the conversation and this it was a particularly badly timed <laughs> uh week for that so not so great and honestly yeah. if she decided to ditch those segments i wouldn't be mad i kind of like to see her try again it's like just be like oh, sorry guys that that's let's let's actually do this and do it well do it you know do a good job uh, but i i've just really you know like we talked about earlier i've really in been very happy to see a growing awareness of trans issues in popular culture and more and more um, discussion and awareness and just seeing trans people just being people on television, which is happening at a rate that I'm very excited about. And I hope will just continue to be more and more a staple 
of you know like certain certain areas certain chunks of the of the country and the world are just gonna not ever see that because they don't want to so they can just bubble themselves off and not interact with this portion of the population but i really like that for those who are unaware who don't know anyone who's trans who aren't aware of trans issues that they can turn on abc or they can turn on comedy central or they can turn on abc family and just see a trans person and be like oh i'm learning stuff even if i didn't set out to do that today and so i think you know while i agree that it should have been better um i just am glad for the awareness sure um but yeah other than that it it's a very very good premiere um as we've said before second episode is pretty good Third episode, y'all are going to want to watch. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's go from a premiere to a finale. Fresh Off the Boat just finished up its uh, its shortened first season this past week. So Chinese. And uh, so I'm curious, what did, did you keep up with the show? Did you just um, check back in for the finale? And, you know, any thoughts on, on the end of the season here? Uh, for me, Fresh Off the Boat was cursed with consistency where when it was on, I would watch it. And when it wasn't, I wouldn't think about it because I was I was pretty secure in the knowledge that it was pretty good every week. Uh, I did check in for the finale. I thought it was appropriate that it ended with an episode wherein the characters wrestle with whether or not they're Chinese enough, considering the think pieces that were floating around <laughs> Ari, fresh off the boat and blackish and whether it was enough that they were funny sitcoms um, and, you know, whether they were doing enough to uh, to to look at to look at its characters, racial identity and blah, blah, blah. And sorry, not to disparage <laughs> unduly, but uh, the, the fact that they ended with an episode that kind of acknowledged uh, those those concerns on, on a on a metatextual level or not, uh, I thought was appropriate. And it was funny, like usual. Yeah, that's the main thing for me. It's funny. Uh, the I don't think it's their funniest of the season or anything, but but like you say, it's been a very consistent first season. I'm excited for season two, and I'm glad uh, that. As you mentioned when you first caught up with the show, I'm glad that Twitter loves Constance Wu and uh, America hopefully does as well. It doesn't have the as great of ratings as at the end of the season as it did at the beginning, which is to be expected. But hopefully it'll be able to come back big next year and really build an audience because I because I enjoy Fresh Off the Boat and I'm going to I'm going to miss it a little bit. Um, let's go on to move on to our next show, though, and that's Jane the Virgin, Chapter 18. Uh, we, we get the um, Jane and Raph split formalized a bit this week um but i gotta say i'm not a huge fan of the way that they're doing it it just feels very contrived and um and while i believe raf would do would make the decisions he does here especially being in such a complicated place in such a dark place with having lost so much over the course you know of the series um, it's still, I can't help but see the writerliness of it. So is that just me? Are you similarly concerned? Kind of. I mean, it's, I feel like it's folly to guess where they're going to go with things. The fact that it's happening now with only like a couple episodes to go in the season is worrisome because it gives them just enough time to, to build swing, up to a cliffhanger, to build up to a cliffhanger or to swing the pendulum, certain possible troubling directions. Uh, which I'm not such a huge fan of the prospect of. That being said, like in general, this didn't feel like that momentous an episode, uh, unless you were, unless you only watched Jane the Virgin to find out how you know Jane and Raph are doing every week. You know the whole thing with with Zoe and Roe and the kiss, etc. Like that stuff. All it 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 almost it often feels like they're off on a regular sitcom. Well, mm -hmm. 
Jane is is handling sort of the the hottier business of the show, uh, which is fine because they're both really funny and affectionate, and it's very straightforward and it works. Um, it would be nice to see the, everyone a little bit better integrated with each other soon. Mm-hmm. I like that they brought back Michael's partner. I like that they retconned that she was working for Rose this whole time, which is why she was dragging her feet so much early on. It was needlessly antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, to have an antagonist, like I'm certain it was initially, but um, but that that, that came together in a way that, that seemed nice and, and seemed to work. I also like that they, again, brushed the Andy stuff uh, aside pretty pretty quickly and just have her tell Michael and you know then again that's one of the things that that Jane does consistently do with anything other than Raph and Michael like that potential love triangle all the uh, the other parts of the show do tend to set up something that, that looks like it'll be an annoying consi- continuing thread and then just say oh, nope we're going to be rational and we're going to be open about this because that's the kind of show that Jane is so yeah um, yeah last thing I'll mention <laughs> Michael breaking things off with Andy literally seconds after he finds out that that Jane's broken up with Raph. Not a good look. I don't know if they intended for that to be a good look or not, but it was not a good look. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I th- I'm going to withhold judgment on that until we see where they go in the next couple episodes. But I, even if we haven't been as, as wild about these last couple episodes, I, I, I think I feel safe in saying that we're both still very much enjoying Jane the Virgin. Absolutely. Um, well, I wanted to check in with the comedians, the red carpet. This is the third episode of the season. Just because I like that this is such a silly, ridiculous episode, which basically Billy Crystal and Josh Gad get stoned and go to the grocery store and wander around and play with an inflatable Shamu. Like, that. that's it. And after, you know, some of the needless antagonism of the pilot and some of these other elements that I felt a little less um, interesting in the earlier episodes, I like that they just are silly and ridiculous here. And we have, you know, whenever you get, a, you know, actors playing themselves on TV, I always appreciate when they, you know, a character like the Josh Kedd character can go, and I'm just hanging out in a grocery store with Billy Crystal. This is crazy. Um, so I like that awareness of it. And I had fun with this episode. What, what do you think? Still not really seeing the funny yet. Uh, and that's sort of what I'm waiting for. I didn't, I didn't laugh at this one. I, um, there were the little things I appreciated. I liked, I, I liked Dennis O'Hare as essentially John Landgraf, um, mm. and his, his, his facial reactions to the conference call, as much as that was an insanely hackneyed joke, um, that they didn't really do a whole lot with. I, I did enjoy him in that scene and at, and at the, uh, and in the, the, the punchline, I guess you could say at the end. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to where they might be going with it, but it's still not really working for me yet. Uh, also, the sketches within the st- of the show from the show within the show are, I think, at this point, too unfunny. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like I don't really buy that they would be that unfunny, and that everyone would be okay with it. Is, does that make any sense? Yeah, that's a, the, one of the most confusing things for me with the comedians. Is are the sketches from the show within the show supposed to be funny? Because almost uniformly, they are not. And yet, the show uses them so frequently that it's hard to imagine they're intentionally not funny. So it's, you know, like if they had just maybe one per episode, then you could, you know, say it was a 30 30 Rock girly show kind of thing. But 
They use a lot of them. It's it's also confusing for me in levels that I don't think it's supposed to be. Like these, this doesn't feel on brand for FX. They mm-hmm. they wouldn't air this sketch. I see a "You're the Worst" poster in the background, and then I get distracted, <laughs> and then I'm not laughing. So, but that's po- probably a, a, a me problem. Well, a show that I think we're both a little bit more on board with is Louie, and they had their third episode this week, Cop Story, which uh, brings back, we'll talk about him later in this podcast uh, with our lovely guest, Kate Rennebaum, but uh, what did you think of Michael Rappaport in this week's episode of Louie? I have to think that was written for him. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't really, because, you know, he, he doesn't strike me as, a, as an inaccessible performer, uh, but just the the way that the character is written and the way he's so physically overbearing and his sheer New Yorkness uh, is so Rappaport and it's so great to see him in his uh, it's so thoroughly in his wheelhouse when we were just talking about him possibly overstretching a little bit in his justified role um, as much as we don't want to blame him for season five we'll get there um, that he was just so he's just so great as basically this overgrown sad baby uh, who happens to have a badge and a gun? Uh, that I loved. Uh, it didn't really occur. I, as I said before, I, lo- I love writing about Louis because when I do, I con- I think of connections between segments that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And like like the opening with with Louis at the kitchenware store, which feels very much like a fantasy, and or or a, a nightmare, you might say, as opposed to something that really happens, quote unquote, happens to Louis. Um, uh. At first, I thought of it as being totally unrelated to what happens later, but I, I think ap- after a little bit of consideration, I like the idea that both parts of the episode are about being left behind and how uh, ultimately for Louis, it could be a lot worse because he could have turned out like Lenny. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to rewatch with that context, thinking about it from that perspective. Um, yeah, I like that the opening there and yeah, the Michael Rappaport stuff is really effective. And I mean, just like... <laughs> When Louis is like trying to hide the gun and everything, like it's that's that's some fantastic comedy from Louis C.K. Yes, uh, that 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 whole sequence works really well. Also, long take watch uh, when Louis fir- when we first get the sequence of Louis walking uh, seemingly out from the shop we just saw him in and uh, gets stopped by the cop car. Cop car pulls around. He gets shouted down. Rockport comes out of the car. They have a long conversation. One take. There's there's a cut in the middle where they where they we get sort of a wide shot, and then we get back into it. So theoretically, there was about like a five minute take there that gets cut into two parts. So anyway, I always like noticing that. <laughs> well, what about Adventure Time, Jermaine? What did you notice this week? Uh, I noticed that uh, in the last like few frames of the episode, we we get an explanation for why. Uh, why Jermaine is wearing a bear costume in uh, in in Jake's dream, which I really mm-hmm. appreciated. I like this one. It had a good balance of uh, sort of action beats with absurdism, with uh, the sort of high concept twistiness that Adventure Time some- somehow manages to cram into eleven minutes. Yeah, it was very creative. I like seeing Jermaine, um, and just again, whenever we get these reminders. <laughs> of Finn and Jake not always bringing sunshine and happiness with them. Uh, I, I always get a kick out of that. So I thought, I thought it was well done and uh, a lot of fun. Um, what about uh, children's hospital? Just like Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, for me, this, I just wanted to mention it 
quickly because I just thought so many shows do the Cyrano thing. I always enjoy when they call it out. And so when this basically becomes one insanely long game of telephone so that they can each Cyrano the other, um, I just, I enjoyed the, the snake eating its tail of that. And, uh, you know, bringing back Chance Briggs for like two seconds on the, on the phone to be part of the chain, that kind of thing really worked. And uh, also, um, wasn't that Madonna? Uh, yes, it was Madonna. Uh, oh, always nice to see the old gal kicking around. Um, uh, beyond that, you, you're, you're you're absolutely right. It's n- nice to have uh, that level of um, that that level of of, of self awareness of yes, we're doing a trope, and then exploding that trope out to ridiculous proportions, which is exactly what they're good at. And uh, I noticed this was dire- this one was directed by Lake Bell, uh, who, if she was in the episode, I don't remember it. Um, but it was it was nice to see a little bit of visual flair to the uh, not only to the, um, uh, the 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 many divisions of the screen, which only got more elaborate, but also to the uh, to the office sequence that closed out the episode. Just just a just a little bit of extra effort uh, that went a long way. Okay, well let's move on to our last two comedies, uh, the HBO lineup of Veep and Silicon Valley. So first up, uh, we're going to talk about Veep Data. Now last week we really enjoyed uh, East Wing and gave it our episode of the week. For me, after that one, this one was a little bit of a letdown, just that because it was good, it was very good. I enjoyed my time quite a bit, um, but it wasn't great like last week. So at least for me, what did you think? Uh, I mean, it was definitely still funny. I don't really buy the stakes of Dan is fired because. It's just it's it's what the third episode of the season mm-hmm. uh and they obviously enjoy dan too much to ever get rid of him so i assume he's going to get uh jonahed and s- stay in the show somehow uh possibly as i i like i do like the idea of potentially uh, potentially folding him into some sort of antagonist uh, i think that would be great actually or could or could have some some great ramifications I also like that only three episodes in, they're still continuing the uh, Jonah gets sexually assaulted every episode thread, but they already have Dan aware of it, like other people finding out. Um, So I just kept waiting for Dan to turn it into Let's Fire Teddy. And so when that didn't happen, I I imagine that's leading somewhere else instead. And um, well, well, and I I like that the show that the show slash Dan draws a line. He's literally about to fire Jonah and he's so amped about it like he's never been more happy to do a bad thing to someone and then he finds that it's like and that's just that's just a line too far he he actually is concerned like is this happening a lot like he's like well not a lot um <laughs> and then it's it's suddenly like i he it, it it becomes like an actual human moment and this is something we've talked about with beat before and i'm glad that it still has uh it it still retains that shred of humanity amidst amidst the rampant cynicism yeah, definitely. Um, there's there's some fun there's some fun moments. I I'm very excited about the rise of Erickson in the administration. That's promising a lot of of nice comedic dividends. And um, yeah, it's it's again it's another really good episode of Beep, even if it's not even if it's not one of their all time greats. Um, any other Beep thoughts, or shall we move on to Silicon Valley? Bad money. Let's do it. This week we get uh, Chris Dematopoulos showing up as the the group's angel investor, um, who shock and astonishment is more than they bargained for, and um, will likely end up driving at least quite a bit of the humor and uh, 
contrivances maybe of this season humorous contrivances hopefully what did you think of this episode and are you excited for you know this new character uh i, I don't know it, it it sort of felt like a one episode character yeah um like very much a one joke sort of figure whereas someone like gavin belson i feel like has uh, is a little bit more dimensional and and has uh has a little bit more versatility to how they can be deployed uh, if only because he's an incredible bullshitter. Uh, the the Hanneman character is so is very much what he is all of the time, uh, and I think they're going to de- need to be a lot more judicious about how they use him if they're going to keep him around. Um, that being said, uh, I, I I was remembering uh, the way people in tech talk about Silicon Valley when I was uh, watching the scenes of of, of Gavin Belsom and his uh, his his uh, his line about how. Uh, tech billionaires are treated worse than the Nazi uh, than Jews in Nazi Germany, which I swear is something I've heard actual billionaires say. Like it's not, it was not something invented for this show. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I thought the scene played really well. I would have liked even a, a slight acknowledgement of it when they're talking about how um, middle digit character should have uh, gone with Huli. I would like uh, uh, the guy who said that he's got it worse than the Jews in Nazi Germany. You know, like I've, right, yeah, a little reference to that would have been would have been nice. Um, but no, I thought that scene was played really well. I enjoy just like the little details of his. He has a different pristine pair of colored sneakers in like each scene and they're always a different color uh, like little things like that are really fun recurring bits with that character and i agree that this new figure was was really fun for this episode but they're gonna need to do some shading um for him not to get really old however just like the 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 opportunities that this character's presence opens up for like martin star especially are wonderful. So if, if if that's all we get from that character, it's just opportunities for Martin Starr to be deadpan and just utterly over this guy, uh, I will be a happy Kate. Uh, I actually got a, an even bigger kick out of his interactions with Zach Woods, mm. which I which I will not repeat here for the sake of trying to keep swearing to a minimum. Yes, that is probably a, a, a good idea. Um, well, any other thoughts on this episode? Or if not, what wins your week in comedy? Um, the Jane the Virgin Award goes to Inside Amy Schumer. Yeah, one of these days, Jane the Virgin will get back on on peak form, and you know, show us again why it is the Jane the Virgin Award. But um, this is definitely Inside Amy Schumer, such a fantastic premiere. Um, we'll see if they can retain the crown for the next few weeks. But for now, let's move on to our week in genre.
weekend genre, we're going to preview Wayward Pines. Uh, specifically, the, we're going to talk about the, the premiere uh, or the pilot where Paradise is home. Uh, and I'll talk a little more generally about the, the first season as well. Then we'll talk Orphan Black, Transitory Sacrifices of Crisis, Game of Thrones, High Sparrow, and we'll wrap things up with Outlander, Lollybrock. So first, um, Wayward Pines is premiering on Fox on May 14th. However... Right now, uh, gentle listener, you can go to Fox.com and several other places and watch the premiere. They're going to pull it offline on the 30th. So it's been like a week-long thing where you can watch the premiere. They're calling it like a cross-platform preview. And then you'll know whether you want to tune in when they air it again um, in May. I don't really understand why they're doing this, but... You watch this. I've seen the first five, and you've seen this premiere. The first one. The first one. So um, what did you think? Here's something that I think everyone should know about Wayward Pines. It is not an M. Night Shyamalan series. Can we get that out of the way? Because for some reason, the people who made Wayward Pines want you to think that it is. Why anyone would want anyone to think that their show or their movie, or their comic book, or their apartment is an M. Night Shyamalan thing in 2015, I have no idea. It, it's it's an absolutely flabbergasting marketing angle, considering he directed the pilot, and for that gets a producer credit, and that's it. Yeah, he, I think he's a very good director, and I like, I think the pilot is well directed, but no, the, the, when people think Shyamalan, they think his writing, and he, his films on, I, be, I believe he was written, at least, or co-written all of them, um, and there's been diminishing returns, because at this point, it seems to me, he's not a particularly great writer, um, though I do think he is a very talented director. So when you say, as part of why I was so excited about Avatar The Last Airbender, the film, because initially he was only going to direct it and he wasn't going to write it. And then that changed. And then fans of the series or people of, or good cinema, uh, apparently I haven't seen it. Everyone I know who has hates it though. and says it's a terrible film, um, including people whose opinions I trust. This I think is a very interesting show. And the pilot, like I said, directed by Shyamalan is a uh, well-directed, I think they do a good job with it. I've seen the first half. It's going to be a 10-episode season, ten episode season, and um, I've not read the book upon which it's based, um, but I think they do a good job with their pacing and with establishing this world. Do, let's, for those who haven't seen it, uh, do you want to give a quick premise, Simon? Uh, sure. Uh, Matt Dillon, Secret Service agent, uh, wakes up in The Prisoner, basically. Well, not not quite, but he wakes up in, in this... Uh, mysterious town having uh, having he's been searching for uh, some missing fellow agents who were who you know went disappeared in that general area wakes up in in wayward pines idaho and after a car accident after a car accident all is not as it seems he has he has a a dark or mysterious or troubled past uh, I think that's really all you need for now banged up Matt Dillon walking around not knowing what to do in in this seeming ghost town uh, and you learn a lot very quickly. I, I, I think the best thing about the pilot uh, is is the fact that it wears its influences on its sleeve and uh, manages to do that while having, I think, a reasonably distinct tone. Like, you can almost break it down mathematically, like it's 33% the prisoner, uh, and then the rest is evenly divided between, like, Lost, the Twilight Zone, and uh, what's the other one I had in mind? Uh, Twin Peaks, obviously. Um, it's that's almost the entire show right there, plus a good cast, plus 
no particularly obnoxious writing. I mean, there is definitely some piloty right exposition here and there, but nothing too painful. Uh, I think going forward, what's gonna what it's gonna need is a, a reasonable amount of self awareness and humor uh, to keep it from getting too dire, and b uh, to give us some stakes we actually care about because uh, it 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 moves things along at a really good clip, especially given what the last line of dialogue is. Uh, and if it's gonna keep that up, we're gonna need to uh, really be invested in the Dylan character and his and his adventures in this uh, in this place. Let's say. Yeah. Place. Place. Um, I think people will be happy to know that by the midway point of the season, you have answers. Um, they, who knows if they'll do twists upon that and reveals and reveals and, you know, but you have solid answers and reveals throughout these first five episodes. So they don't, it's not like a some sort of long game where they don't actually know where they're going. This is based on a book. They know where they're going. Um, and the the author of the book is the showrunner here, as I understand it. So um, that is reassuring for any show that's based on based so much in mystery. The characters, they seem like they have a strong grasp on the characters. And um, Melissa Leo and Toby Jones play uh, significant figures, as well as in the pilot. You, there's a lot of Juliette Lewis, who I think does a good job, and Carla Gino and uh, Shannon Sossaman. There's, there's some faces people will recognize. And I mean... Having seen the first five, I would say fans of those shows that you referenced um, who aren't going to be who, – who wouldn't rather just watch those shows again, you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. think would uh, w- enjoy – you know, or it's worth checking out Wayward Pines. You can watch the pilot and let us know what you think. Well, let's move on to Orphan Black, Transitory Sacrifices of Crisis. And last week in the premiere, we were underwhelmed by the premiere of the introduction of the casters and and some of the places that the it seemed like they were going. With this second episode, I've sort of inverted some of these different elements. I still uh, am, am good with what they're doing with Helena, um, but instead of being excited about the Allison stuff, I'm now disappointed that it seems like they're just doing Weeds 2.0. But I think there's forward momentum on the caster front because it seems like we have names for the the casters so far. We have Seth, um, who doesn't make it through the episode, and Rudy, who seems like he'll be a more significant figure. But one of the most important things they do here is have that Rudy character break from the other casters so he will theoretically become more individualized almost immediately. I don't know why they didn't do that in the premiere. That seems like a strange choice. But at least it seems like it's a step in the right direction. Am I being overly optimistic about that? Um, it's possible. Uh, I would like to say that I called it because we you did. we, you we did are already it. down. It's it's episode two and we're down a caster. If if I'm gonna call it again and say that if we get to the end of the season and there's more than two casters left, I'll be very surprised. Uh, and I would be even less surprised if there was only one left. How about Allison? Are you as disappointed as I am that they seem to be going straight up weeds? Um, maybe not as disappointed as you are, but it's definitely, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a great choice to lean into genre elements in the Allison corner of the show, because it seems like, uh, it was sort of their refuge for, uh, for sort of like the normal life part of the show. And if, if you want to put it that way, although she did kill someone a couple seasons ago, for them to just add another layer of criminality and, uh, and stuff to go violently wrong potentially uh, is, I don't think, a great move. And yes, it is very familiar. We don't need another, re- though I guess that's a very convenient way to bring art into things again. I was glad that art still exists and that he pops up here. That was very nice. But we don't need more 
contrivances and we don't need more convolution. Um, things, things are already complicated enough without Allison now starting a criminal empire. Um, and so that I just, I don't understand what the writers are thinking with that. So hopefully I hope to be surprised and, you know, pleasantly. So with that moving forward, um, also what they have here with Paul, I, I, I guess everything that he, the character has said for three, two years has just all been schemes within schemes and lying. And he really is this guy now. Um, underwhelming for me again. I, and I'm only harsh on the show because I have loved it so much in the past. The last thing I'll say um, is that Felix remains the best, and I'm glad that they are giving Jordan Gavars things to do. He really should move at this point, but I, I love his loft, and so I would hate to actually see him move. But um, anyways, that is one corner of the show that I am very glad that they are seemingly uh, very consistent with. Yeah, I've never cared about Paul, and I still don't. And I don't know why he's still there. I just, I don't, they, they really, Orphan Black loves its characters too much. That it's a strange problem to have, but it, it, it seems to love everyone in its cast and is afraid to let them go. Remember that one time they let a great actor go uh, in the form of Leaky and it was awesome. They mm -hmm. need to, they need to start killing their darlings a little bit more, which is not to say they should start killing off Maslani's because they shouldn't, but you know, yeah. maybe they should. Maybe they should. Okay, well, how about Game of Thrones High Sparrow? Um, I'm going to have, you know, the Sound and Sight Game of Thrones podcast is already out at this point, um, so you all know what I think. But what did you think of, of this episode, Simon? Uh, I'm going to keep it brief because, as you mentioned, there is a whole other podcast to hear on that subject. But uh, I think this keeps up the momentum uh, really, really well. The uh, I like that we get so much time with Arya in the House of Black and White. Is that what it's called? Um, and with Yakin Hagar. Oh, Yakin Hagar. The man with, the, he, the man with the cellar door, or the uh, or the Finn Palmar of, of fantasy character names. There's there's a familiarity to those beats in terms of like get you know get, you know getting into the mysterious fold uh, feels like something we've seen before. But uh, always nice to to get time with Maisie Williams and that character. Uh, also like the stuff with Sansa and Littlefinger. When when he talks about it, it feels like an okay plan. Unfortunately, neither of them seems to really know Ramsey. <laughs> so uh, I'll be curious to see how, how they're able to reconcile that, if at all, and what's going to happen when those characters actually meet and, uh, and really get to know one another. Cause I can't imagine Littlefinger being as protective among other things as he is of her, uh, being still okay. being still down with that plan. If he gets any inkling of what Ramsey's really like, unless he's just lying, but I can't think, I don't think that he is. Uh, you say protective, I say possessive. I think they're different. And I think it can be both. Yeah. Brienne's coming, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. So, although, as noted, her, her track record for protecting people, not great. Mm. So, yeah, anyway, it's, it's carrying on the momentum very, very well, and that makes me happy. And that's all I'll say for now. Okay. Uh, any words on Jonathan Price? Uh, oh yes, Jonathan Price is here. It always makes me happier, even though uh, I feel like it's just going to result in in awful things for several people concerned. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, we'll check in more with that next week. But for now, let's move on to Outlander, Lollybrook, and after the the all the reveals of last week and Claire's big decision, um, we get to Lollybrook. So, what did you think of this episode? Outlander is such a weird show. I know I've said this before, but 
it's an it's an incredibly strange show. And I, I remember uh, we uh, we just recorded a segment on the Americans uh, a few days ago, and the this notion of uh, shows we admire but don't love came up. And Outlander is a perfect fit for that for me because it does so many things that I think are amazing, but I don't know if it's really a great show. And this episode to me is a perfect example of that. The the depiction of uh, of rape, or I should say attempted rape, and uh, and dominance and trauma and uh, and and all, all the stuff you don't normally see depicted in such a full on way, um, without some sort of exploitative angle, was really great. Uh, that being said, like at, in terms of how it played as like a. St- it, as like a part of a larger story, uh, it it really felt like uh, here we we you know we introduce a problem, uh, we we get a little bit more backstory. The problem is resolved, and then new problem right at the in in the last thirty seconds, like new horrible cliffhanger. Um, and Outlander evokes all these like naughty, K N O T T Y, uh, stuff. And and all this compli- all these complicated emotions and ideas, and then it packages them in really neat little bows. Am I, do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, I do, and I think that ties into the. I mean, this is if you want to have fun uh, and you don't mind being potentially spoiled for the show, go on to Wikipedia and read like the, just the paragraph or two paragraph long plot synopses of like the eight or ten books in the Outlander series. Um, this is a show that loves its twists and its high adventure and, you know, surprise left hooks out of nowhere. Um, so, though that's redundant. But anyways, um, I th- I, th- I think that pace makes sense for what they're adapting. And it certainly keeps this more on the adventure side of things than the straight up um, interpersonal drama or, st- you know, straight up romance. Um, and I appreciate that, actually. I also... Like, a situation like the cliffhanger we get at the end of this episode, I am not worried at all about this cliffhanger. It's going to be resolved within the first, like, five minutes of the next episode, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, the, the different of the elements uh, of suspense and drama and, you know, flurry of action after flurry of action are effective for me or, or actually have me concerned about the show, and this is not one of them, so... Um, I do, I do agree though, that there's a lot of very interesting, uh, material in this episode. And again, in the show, I like meeting Jenny and getting more information about her backstory with, uh, with, with Jamie and her, that you know, relationship with their father. I thought that, uh, that worked very well. Um, I, I also, I think I like how tricky the relationship with Claire and Jenny is. At first, I was annoyed. It's like, oh, we have to have the women, you know, in- instinctually uh, fighting with each other and possessive of their men. But um, I think it's because they're similar. And so that's where that's coming from. So I'm looking forward to that developing. I, I assume it will in the next few episodes. But um, but no, the last thing I have to mention is we have another peen on the screen in 15. Our first dramatic peen on the screen in 15. We do. And I, and I, I had I watched the scene... Uh, like as soon as I realized what was happening, I I had to I went went to rewind to the beginning of the scene to make sure that it wasn't a penis double. It was not. 
Okay. Or, or I mean, I suppose it could have been, there could have been a prosthesis involved, but yeah. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that was Tobias Menzies' dick, so I, well done. And I don't really care if it is or if it's a prosthesis, I, but I, I like that in a scene like this, they don't cut the corners. They don't try to, like, cut, shoot around what's happening, and especially given um, what is happening in the scene... I think, you know, I really appreciate that. And in a show as comfortable with sexuality and with nudity um, as Outlander, it was only a matter of time for or for them to, to go there, I guess, with, you know, with their nudity. But to have it be in this way, I think, is an interesting choice. And... Um, they they're they're very good at artfully cutting around things when it's a sex scene with Jamie and and Claire, and so to have to have uh, Jack Randall almost entirely clothed, um, and but then to you know get a dick shot I think is an interesting choice and um, and I like that they don't try to that they give you put you in Jenny's perspective by having this be a thing that. She can't escape, and so the audience doesn't escape it either. No, uh, and this 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 notion of her using um, finding a weakness in this case mockery, and, exp- and and exploiting it as sort of a last resort to get out of the situation is that's that that I can safely say is a dramatic beat I have not seen before. So yeah, the well power of uh, like when she has nothing else, she still has this this she still has this element of power over him that he can't the only way he can stop it is to knock her out um and so i thought that was a very well done uh well well acted directed shot you know edited i thought it was very well put together and i'm looking forward to what comes what can most of what comes next now that i've read these plot synopses there's a few things i'm not looking forward to but um (laughs) um there's a, there's quite a bit that I think will be really interesting to see them pull off. But for now, what wins your week in genre? Are we gonna are we gonna have to start calling it the Game of Thrones Award? Um, I think for right now we might. Though I think Outlander was a contender last week. Yeah, um, I, I did like a lot about Outlander, even if I don't find it necessarily super uh, super compelling as a show. If that makes any sense. Um, so I'm still gonna give it to Game of Thrones, I guess. Yeah, I'll give it to Game of Thrones as well. Um, there's definitely, you know, like I said, the Game of Thrones podcast is already in your feed, so you can get my fuller thoughts there. But I am intrigued with some of the developments, shall we say. Um, but for now, let's move on to our week in drama. Money burns a hole in my pocket oh, I wish I had millions of dollars and nothing to do but just buy pretty presents for you money burns a hole in my pocket how oh, I wish I had oil wells in Texas to keep me supplied with money while I sit by your side. 
This week in drama, I'm going to preview the Casual Vacancy um, miniseries on HBO. Then we'll talk about the Americans finale, March 8th, 1983, Mad Men, Time and Life, and The Good Wife, The Deconstruction. Um, briefly here, the, the Casual Vacancy is the novel by J.K. Rowling. It was uh, It's her first novel that she put her name to. Um, instead of using a pseudonym, since the publishing of the Harry Potter series, and it's been adapted into a three-hour miniseries over two nights on HBO. The, the this was written the by another writer, so it was adapted by someone else, and there have been some some changes, some significant changes um, to the source material as far as plot and some other changes. I, I haven't read the book, but I believe based on like some reviews and things that I've read that the tone is very similar. Um, but it's definitely not a like scene for scene, just shooting the book. Um, and I, I will say that, um, I actually don't have a lot to say about this. Um, I probably wouldn't have finished it if I wasn't listening, watching it for the podcast because it is just, there's a lot of despair. And I, at a certain point I felt like, why am I watching this? If it's just a lot of people being terrible in a small town and people trying to get rich and not caring who they trample along the way. Um, there's, there's just, it's, there's some dark, there's a lot of darkness. It's very grim. Um, but it's, it has a very strong cast. I think like Michael Gambon is one of the main characters, one of the main, uh, leads. And, uh, you know, our, our, our favorite, uh, Penny Dreadful star, Roy Kinnear, uh, it has a really strong presence. Um, he's only in a few, uh, a, a short portion. He's not in the whole thing, but, um, but he makes an impression and I liked him a lot in this. Um, and, and there are other, you know, the, a lot of actors I've appreciated other things like, uh, like the, um, in the flesh, uh, I don't have her name for me. The actress plays Amy and in the flesh is in this. And there's, there's a number of other actors I recognize that I enjoyed spending time with, I guess, even if, I wasn't always enjoying what was happening to them or around them, but um, yeah. So for fans of the book or who of, of the cast, I think they will enjoy this. But it's kind of hard to for me to recommend it just because I feel like I've seen a lot of these beats in other stories and other films and other TV shows, and it's just it's a hell of a downer. Um, if, if if you don't if you aren't interested in a portrait of of this of this type of you know corruption and inhumanity um or in lack of care for people who are struggling in a small town um yeah so that's that's where i will leave it i with the sort of a vague if you like the book check it out if you like these actors and that you aren't turned off by you know the story or, or the premise, you know, a, a, a council is, has to decide whether they're going to shut down a methadone clinic to turn it into a fancy spa for rich people. <laughs> you can guess how that goes. Um, if You know, then, then check it out. And if that doesn't interest you, then I would say steer clear. And, um, and you, you know, I don't think, I don't think people are missing anything huge, but I do think it's well shot and well made. It's just, you know, maybe not my... Per, maybe not my ideal way to spend a, f a few hours. Um, but uh, let's move on to things that we've both seen and uh, shows that we love, uh, including The Americans, which had its finale March 8th, 1983. As Simon already mentioned, we'll be having a season spotlight of The Americans next week on the podcast. So we're just going to talk about this finale. And uh, what did you think? 
uh, I was so disarmed by this finale because it was not at all what I was expecting. If if you had told me in advance that there was going to be no Martha, no Kimmy, uh, and several other plots not really at all resolved, um, I I think I would have been really annoyed, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but to actually watch it, I thought it was a, a perfectly fitting uh, end of the season in terms of just the, the tone of sheer anguish and pain and it's funny you were just talking about um the casual vacancy and how you might not be into it if you're not into miserabilism and i've heard that criticism leveled at the americans for sure and that's something we talk about in the segment a little bit um but there's uh but the, the i guess the layering of of various kinds of pain is what makes the americans so great if that makes any sense um, and even, even in the, like, for some reason I was really picking up on the scoring this week and the way, uh, nothing ever seems to resolve literally and <laughs> I'm sure you noticed that Kate, um, yeah. just, just big open nowhere chords all the time. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> damn, they're just, they just want us to bleed out on this carpet. And I mean, we're getting another season. Uh, it's just been confirmed that Frank Langella is coming back. I'm assuming that, uh, the actress who plays Kimmy will be back as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be an agonizing like 10 month wait. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've seen some frustration from certain sources about the lack of Martha or the lack of Kimmy. And, and maybe it's because I so clear for me, that last scene in the penultimate episode was so clearly one of vulnerability and honesty and reaching out like it was in no way a threat i felt not even and it didn't even really it's much like the producers have said it didn't really occur to me that people thought that that meant he was going to kill her it seemed like it was just to me it was just felt like a, a act of respect and concern and um true openness and so for me to have a scene with martha after that would have been odd um if it wasn't, a, if it, if she didn't, if she wasn't in like a lot of this episode, like I could see it going either way. Either she's in a bunch of this episode or she's not in it at all. To so have like two minutes with her after that wig scene and just be like, hey, so we're, we're good for now. Like that would have been very, very odd to me. Um, and because Kimmy wasn't in the previous episodes, again, that storyline is in a holding pattern until something pushes it off of that. And so if they aren't going to do a big cliffhanger with it, Again, I think it's fitting that we don't see her. Instead, we focus on Paige. And I really liked everything we got with Paige. I loved seeing um, Elizabeth and Paige and Elizabeth's mother, or, or Nandyeshka's um, mother, all together. It was a lovely scene. Very well staged and framed. I, uh, watching Elizabeth react to her daughter praying for her mother yep. was amazing. And... Uh, you know, there's there's just there's a lot here that really did work for me. I still don't know that I think the Nina stuff has worked very well over the course of the season. I don't know that I needed to see it, but this feels very much like a a pause. Like this feels like a mid season finale to me. Like if they were doing um season you know three point oh and three point five, this would feel like a midpoint. So I I would yeah. I would not be surprised if, if seasons like three and four feel like they are one sort of with a pause in the middle and then season five it's is its own thing 
or even if it just continues sort of in this way to the end of a proposed season five. But this really felt more like a, a pause point. And given how many storylines they've been wrangling, I'm absolutely fine with that. I'd, I'd rather have them do this type, take this approach and do it so well um, instead of feeling like they needed to have something just, you know, some dramatic conclusion to everything um, just because it's a, a season finale, especially because we know the show's coming back. Yes, and and even though it was only confirmed, I think a couple of weeks ago, it's the sense this was not a finale made by people who don't think they're coming back. Yeah, uh, can you imagine if it had been canceled and this was the last episode? No, no, <laughs> oh I can't. God. Yeah, you'd be <laughs> listening been... to a different review if that were the case. <laughs> yes. What? Anyway, yeah. Oh, um... the last thing I'll say is that I really loved what we got with um, Philip and Est. And that, that those talks with Sandra, uh, I thought were fantastic, and I, I love that he's continuing to to question it. And the way that they, you know, they bring up this uh, this sense of ownership of one's own body and and one's sexuality, and that you know everything that goes with that, I thought has been a wonderful payoff to a season that has really started exploring that side to what they do and how it is affecting both Philip and Elizabeth. Another thing I would not have guessed had you told me to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're gonna get like three scenes of Philip and Sandra. Like yeah. What? Or we're gonna get uh, three scenes of Est. <laughs> like either yeah. of those, let alone both. Um. And when he first shows up there, it's, it's like and, and all I could think was, why is he working Sandra? Like, or like, where's Stan? Yeah. Yeah. What does he have to gain from Sandra? Oh, he's not. He's not working. Like it. It really took me. I wish I'd had a chance to watch the episode again. And see, watch the scenes with fresh eyes because I was so just just deeply confused by Philip actually just sort of looking after trying trying to like work on himself mm. and just be his own person and uh, and when he when he has that conversation with Sandra about being open and honest with each other and just oh ah and he just he really he so badly wants to and and there's this other there's this whole other thing going on with him and Paige and the way that they seem to need something beyond uh b beyond what they do or what they're what is proposed that they do and elizabeth doesn't or seems not to and and the the sort of the sort of gap between them mm -hmm. anyway so much more americans talk next week yeah for now let's move on to mad men time and life and the, I, there was a lot of really strong reaction to this episode on Twitter. People loved this episode. Um, and I, I liked it. I thought it was very good. Um, and there were a few scenes that were just wonderful for me, but, um, but, uh, yeah, but it just, I didn't, I wish I had had that passion. And maybe it's because I saw the reactions before I watched the episode that it got my hopes up too high. Cause I, so I thought it was another very good episode for, for Mad Men. It just, I guess I kept waiting for it to be, you know, one of their great episodes, like the last three or four of the first half of this season or last year's episodes. I was hoping for something on that level. And instead, it was just another really good episode of Mad Men that then had that amazing scene with uh, Peggy and Stan and a couple other scenes like that. Uh, what, what about you? Were you more in line with everybody else? Were you over the moon for this episode? I was pretty close. I mean, I thought this was pretty, this was pretty much in line with, with what we got in the last half of, of the season to, to the point where um, uh, it made me wonder what, what the show, I mean, the last few episodes have been fine, but uh, this to me was clearly uh, quite a lot better. It was, first of all, hilarious. 
uh, which the other episodes haven't been. And I think, I mean, the king ordered it definitely immediately launches itself <laughs> as one of the great all-time Pete Campbell moments, which I feel like have been short, short supply this season. The king order it or not great Bob? I feel like not great Bob <sighs> still wins, oh, but king order is pretty great. Well, I just, I loved that, I guess, no, I cannot, I can't think of another show that would that would dream up this conflict for for Pete, that like oh he his his daughter's not getting to school why, why do we think that is and this is what they came up with well this. and and that they don't elaborate they have feel no need to explain the backstory of what the king did or did not order it's great <laughs> yes um I I think to me what made this episode better than the last few is that there there was there was so much great humor. Uh, I mean, nothing nothing else quite on the King Ordered It level, but certainly a lot of funny stuff, uh, as well as um, three or four really potent scenes that used series memory in a way that I think the other episodes haven't. Uh, I think it also helped that this was the least Dawn-centric episode of this half season, and it kind of stood out for that. Um, I know that, and I wonder almost if they didn't do it just to wreck people's uh, Mad Men theorizing, because I know that... Several people had noticed the last three or four or five episodes it all ended with a shot of Dawn alone panning away. It's like, nope, not this time. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, fine. Um, but everything we got with Stan and Peggy and uh, and their their reactions to uh, to the fact that they're that they're going to be swallowed. It was just it was great to have uh, the the team together to have a team reaction to something because it feels like it's been quite a long time since we've had that. I know a lot of people were noticing the the symmetry between the shot of them sitting at the room, not being sacked, but you know absorbing the, the what they feel is bad news, as the inverse of the shot of the of of the six of them or the five of them um, looking at the, the 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 large windows of the office they haven't moved into yet. Um, that stuff was all great, uh, and there was an absolute minimum of Don miserableism, which I also really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, the I mean, again, it's nice. I always like when we get stuff with Joan and her crushing awareness of what moving to McCann means for her as a as someone who's trying so hard to be a businesswoman to be taken seriously in her own way too, without having to go with Peggy's approach, which wouldn't wouldn't work for Joan. Um, but someone who loves having a job that she respects and that she. Um, you know, that she wants to get better at to have that taken away from her when she's just starting to get her feet under her. Um, I thought that was really well, well played. And, um, and, and then again, see, I can't help it. Like they, they, they downplay the, the, the Peggy Stan stuff. And then here it's like, he's your lobster. Come on. <laughs> uh, they're, they're so great together. And, and as, as noted elsewhere, he, he's even good with kids. Although, course peggy doesn't have any yes but she's she never has. told anyone mm -hmm. i mean and she doesn't tell stan that it's peace kid but you know uh but no one needs to know that part no one i don't think even don <laughs> knows that part pete no. knows it knows that part because that was an amazing scene when she told him that was pretty wonderful actually one of my probably one of my favorite moments in the series but um but no i, I just the way that that scene built and was a culmination of everything that had come previously in the episode with <laughs> her trying to get the children to play. Um, it was, it was just, it was delightful. And, um, yeah, it was, it was 
very moving. And I'm glad to get, after not getting as much with the two of them, um, uh, basically since the Pima stuff, it was nice to see that relationship get a little bit more time. Uh, do you think we'll see Ken again? Um, I don't know. Although his, his jet, his, his period of lording it over them seemed to be awfully short. I like mm -hmm. that he, he says, okay, I've done enough. Yeah. This is it. Not going to happen. Bye. I don't know if we'll see him again. I don't think we really need to. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is, uh, speaking of things that were hilarious in this episode, I hope that's the last time we see Lou Avery. Yeah, I do too. Um, and nice to get Trudy back. <laughs> they may have been not, they may have been, uh, he, well, I guess not they, really. It's all Pete's fault. Pete was a terrible husband, but uh, it's nice to see them when they are united because they are they're a power couple basically treaty's fantastic yeah and you almost get the sense that like maybe we could just we could just get back together again nah nah she can do because so you're much awful better. although you're very good at punching people when you think they've done you wrong <laughs> you can't punch everyone pete <laughs> though it's sweet that he you know that he wants to try for her um well let's move on uh by the way listeners i not normally that I, I do not condone violence or think that is a positive aspect of masculinity in this specific context i'm pro pete <laughs> punching people okay okay uh let's move on to the good wife the deconstruction uh speaking of punching people um who do we have to punch uh about this write-off for kalinda i mean I th I'm fine with it because of the place that the show had gotten to. I They needed to write her off a long time ago. Um, and it doesn't feel like a slap to the face or anything because the show's been so hamstrung by the fact that for whatever reason... Whatever for reason. For whatever reason, Kalinda can't be... Archie Punjabi can't be in a scene with, like... A lot of the cast a lot of the time can't have more than just a couple scenes per episode with anyone we care about um and so to have this be her last episode i guess it was just a pipe dream to think that we would get one more scene with leisha and then to have us not even see what the note is like that reaction from alicia did not work it, it was not earned as far as i'm concerned because she looked at that note for like 10 seconds and then doubled over in like deep physical pain because she was so distraught. It's like, I'm sorry, you haven't shared a scene with this person in how many episodes, Simon? Uh, actually, apparently, if BuzzFeed is to be trusted, tonight's episode marks exactly 50. Yeah, 50 episodes. The last, the last one, by the way, was Red Team, Blue Team. Which is a fantastic episode. But, um, yeah, you don't get to have that reaction when you have it. the actors, for whatever reason, have not been able or willing to share a, a scene together that isn't over the phone in 50 episodes. Well, I can accept uh, she's obviously had a very difficult day. Uh, she's had to step down as state's attorney. Uh, she's just lost her job. She's had horrible fights with everyone she used to care about. Uh, I can accept after a day like that, getting that note, just being like, ah, blah, yeah. collapse, crying, etc. Not um, like bending over in physical pain, though, because it's so bad. like, no, not for me. Yeah, it might be it might be a little bit much. Uh, I mean, that was that was like the 30th worst thing about this episode. Yeah. Um, 
the, the her exit is just so arbitrary and mm-hmm. tossed off and lame lame was the main descriptor uh for this whole episode for me for for the for the end of Kaleida. but i mean that's sort of been the watchword for her plot lines for so long and it makes you uh it's it's incredible to me that so much of the show has been so uh sharp and witty and and well put together and uh and classy it and so many other great descriptors but this thing has just st- so stubbornly never worked and they've never been able to make it work and they kept trying to make it work for so long and i don't know why and it's just if you begin to like parse the logistics of it for any amount of time at all it's completely mind-boggling like these are the, the 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 people behind the show are not stupid although they occasionally do stupid things um you know the they've done an exceptional job i mean you don't get to have your fifth network season be your best season ever by doing a shit job um and the fact that they kept hammering away at the kalinda thing and trying to make it work even when even with these restrictions uh, i mean i get that they need to keep everyone employed but still yeah Yep. And we talked about this, um, you know, before we were recording. When Josh Charles was around, they could really get a lot out of, of that relationship, the Kalinda and Will dynamic, because they had such a history because, you know, Kalinda knew Will before she knew anybody else. Um, but with him gone, um, they really, like, she should have been. I mean, and and Arjun Punjabi and Kalinda—they've been great. I've really enjoyed them. And some of my favorite scenes in the early seasons of the show are Alicia and Kalinda scenes. That that relationship, that friendship, was so crucial. Um, but no matter what the showrunners say, the only reason that that hasn't been repaired, hasn't been mended, is because they need it not to. Because the actors have a problem with each other. So so they can say, "Oh, the betrayal was so deep." No, the betrayal is not deep at all. Come on, look at the different betrayals on this show that they get over. Like, they, like the spat we have, the needless, completely arbitrary spat we have between Alicia and Diane in this episode is it's just ridiculously stupid um, and contrived and over the top and ridiculous. And yet, that's like on water under the bridge in like 30 minutes. But we have Alicia's only and best friend did something before they even met. And that ruins everything forever. I mean, it's just, it only highlights, the way that they write her off and the, the way that that character has been, just, they haven't been able to do anything useful with her really very successfully in years is, um, yeah, they needed to, I would say, and of course, I don't actually have to write the shows, so it's easy for me to armchair quarterback this. But um, mm-hmm. uh, after after Will died, she needed you know they have a transition period and she needed to go that's what i would say what do you think uh at the earliest i mean you could have made a case for it happening i mean imagine if we'd never had to sit through her and her ex-husband mm-hmm. or etc etc i could <laughs> name off bad plot lines they tried to give kalinda because they couldn't put her at the center of the show oh come on um, scott porter oh my god um i i am hoping that next week we find out where the hell they buried robin yeah that's what i was gonna ask is so is robin i like i like how how uh uh carrie comes in like we've got a crucial personnel problem uh 
not only my girlfriend's gone, which is bad. Also, we don't have any other detective because we haven't seen Robin in forever. Um, yeah. What about everything else in this episode? Uh, honestly, everything else was so boring that I, that I, I didn't need, I mean, yeah, it, 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 I, I, I'm flabbergasted at the fact that, yay, they brought Diane back to do stuff. And yet every week that, that, that started happening, it's been issue of the week and that's been pretty much it. And it's been issue of the week. I mean, like you, I, I think that the way that they discussed religious equality and freedom acts like the Indiana basically responding to the Indiana uh, bill or law that got passed recently and uh, with, with same-sex marriage. So I think that is a topic very much in the public debate, you know, in public discussion recently and that a lot of people are not hugely informed about. But mandatory minimums, does anybody not agree that mandatory minimums are terrible? Like, if you're going to do an issue, be, have it be an issue that we don't already know about or say something new about it. Yeah, like I'm not even American and I know that your mandatory minimum sentencing laws are stupid. Um, that's that's definitely not new. And also, and honestly, those scenes were so boring that I kept tuning out and wondering how she could wear that chain and not die. <laughs> yeah, her statement necklaces were a bit much, especially the one that like blended in to her dress. Um, there, yeah. there, there was a fantastic post actually about this at uh, front of the show Emma Fraser's uh, uh, TV at my wardrobe blog that you guys can go check out where they t- she talks about the various statement necklaces of the various jacket outfits, which ones work, which ones don't. Um, it's rare for a Diane Lockhart uh, statement ne- statement necklace to not work, but that did happen in this episode. Um, any other thoughts on the Good Wife this week, or are you just glad that Kalinda's gone before the finale? I was expecting her to go in the finale. <sighs> I know there's been murmurs about her maybe getting an actual final last, but really goodbye. <laughs> no, God, she, really she stares into the camera and says goodbye. That is the king's telling us that she's gone, and then and then shuts the door. Yes. Um. By by the way, how telling is it that they that the kings don't even handle the Kalinda mm-hmm. goodbye episode if that's what this is. Uh, which we are assuming that it is. Uh, I don't know, man. What else are they going to do that's compelling in two more episodes, considering the state's attorney thing is over? Um, I couldn't even really follow why it is that she can't go back to Floricagos. Uh, that part didn't really make sense to me. Uh, um, because R.D. will leave with his, and he's one of like the third richest man in America. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't connect those things. Uh, okay, well, does that mean other new firm, or does that mean they kick out RD and just don't care? I don't know, and none of the options are all that tantalizing to me. The only thing that isn't just completely new that is there is for them to ha- to do another The Season Ends with Romantic Entanglements, and so have it be like Peter and uh, and Finn, and I really don't want them to do this. What, you don't want right Peter now. and Finn to hook up? I think that would be very interesting. But um, having, when she's at this state, having her like desperately reach out for any sort of stability and that's what gets her together with Finn, um, that would just be a really bad look for the show and uh, for them, you know, kind of doom them. And um, I'm really hoping for more interesting writing than that for the, for Finn Bulmar. As the show moves yeah. forward, so I just I I'm sure there'll just be something completely new, but um, I have no idea. It just it it really, oh God, the Good Wife is 
more than disappointing at this point. It's homework. Yeah. When and was I, it I'm, last homework? And I, I'm officially ready to call this season the least good season. It's ah! definitely the least good. It's not even close for me. It's definitely the least good season because every other season had like a weak point. You know, like Kalinda's terrible ex-husband or, you know, but as a whole, they were good. I get to, they worked. We get to the end of the season. I'm like, why did this season, why is this a season that was a season? Yeah. And, and also, like, even just looking back on it, because it was so serialized, there weren't any one-offs that were, oh, there's a red team, blue team, there's a ham sandwich, mm-hmm. uh, there's a whatever. Like, this there's isn't no... true. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's been nothing like that, so... Ah, <sighs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry to go back. We took way too long to explain why this was so disappointing. Yeah. Well, let's focus on the positive. What wins your week in uh, in in drama? We got to give it to the Americans, right? Or, or are you going uh, Mad yeah. Men? Last uh, last chance to give it to the Americans. I still got three more chances to give it to Mad Men. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll also give it to the Americans. Um, though Mad Men definitely turned up this week. Um, if you show notes, you can find a post for this episode up at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us, thetelevers at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound Onsite TV and start up a conversation about the episode and what uh, what other TV you're watching. We're also on iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And we would very much appreciate it if anybody wants to leave a comment or a review or a rating there. It does help other people find the show. Um, and Simon, what is... You, what is our question of the week? This is a little esoteric. Um, so uh, if we don't get any responses, I won't be hugely surprised. But, uh, you know, Mad Men's over in three weeks. And as I may or may not have stated before, when Mad Men ends, I think that's the end of of, of, of uh, the consensus TV drama in terms of, like, the the show that all critics watch, all critics love, or the vast majority of critics love. Um, well liked by audiences will be will be missed by everyone. Um, it's hard to think of another show that uh, that is going to inspire that when it when it leaves. So I'm curious to, if people think uh, there is a show that currently exists, uh, even if it's new, uh, that will inspire that that kind of uh, that kind of shift when it ends. Or if that show doesn't exist, uh, what they think that show might be if it's something that that is on the horizon. It's interesting when that when it ends, it will provoke a similar response. Um, huh? I feel like the one most likely to slip into that role right now is Better Call Saul, uh, because there's such an affinity for the creative team and for the characters, and we like shiny new things. But other shows that when they end, it will be a, a sort of an end of an era. I really can't think of any that that I'm watching. Um, some people may feel that way about like Big Bang Theory, which has been such a huge hit for so long um, and is so popular. Uh, but I mean, maybe something like American Idol. I don't know. I feel like Game of Thrones could, if they do it right like mm-hmm. if because i though know, there's there's been so much discussion of are they going to do seven seasons are they going to do 200 seasons mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's really it's you know what the showrunners want versus what hbo wants uh if they do seven and really and you know follow their plan uh their original plan and actually conclude it i could see that 
um, having a major impact. But beyond that, I really can't think of something else that's captured the zeitgeist in the same way. Yeah. I look for, I'm sure there might be a few that we aren't thinking of. So I look forward to, you know, what other people have to throw out as shows that maybe we are overlooking, but that others are very invested in. But, um, yeah. and the walking dead will never end. So yeah, that's not going anywhere for quite a while. Um, yeah. Interesting. Keep us posted, listeners. Um, but for now, we're going to take a break and come back with Kate Rennebaum, uh to talk about Justify. Justified! Deputy Marshal Evan Gibbons, you got ice cold water running through your veins. 30 seconds. You're going to pull out a gun and you're going to shoot an unarmed man. 20 seconds. So what are you going to do? 10. You do know we're not able to shoot people on sight anymore. He pulled first. Look at you. Looking like a lawman. Seen your daddy yet? No, not yet. into a town like Somerset and they'll blow up a car. And while the cops are busy, they'll go rob a bank. Now, do you know what that is? Mm-mm. I didn't either. That is the cap that goes on the end of a rocket launcher. What's going on? All right, we just out riding around. I just never thought of myself as an angry man. Honestly, you're the angriest man I have ever known. Well, we don't know whether he wants to shoot you or blow you up. Mr. Crow, you better hold on there a sec while I explain something to you. I want you to understand. I don't pull my sidearm unless I'm going to shoot to kill. I got a scatter gun pointed right at you. You racking a load before I put a hole through you? Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, it's a little bit of tears because the fact that we're having to do a DVD shelf means this show is gone, a show that we love here at the Televerse. But it also means that we get to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Miss Kate Rennebaum. Kate, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you for helping us talk Justified. Yeah, hey, thank you for having me back. I am super thrilled to be here and talking about Justified. <laughs> Now, we talked about the finale last week on the podcast because um, we, we wanted to give ourselves a little space so we could really dive in with the finale a bit, have a little time for reflection, and then dive in with the whole show. Um, we've been singing the show's praises on the podcast basically since the podcast started. What's been your relationship with Justified? Have you Did you start watching it with season one or did you catch up later? Uh, how has your experience been? Uh, I think we 
we started watching it uh, just as season one had been made available on DVD. And I don't know if Simon Howell remembers this, but we rented it from Movieland back in the day when Simon was my local video store employee. And I had to convince my husband to start watching Justified. He was like, a Western, Cowboys, Kentucky, like, who cares? I was like, no, 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 the movie line guys say it's great. Like, we got to check this out. It's supposed to be awesome. And uh, so we started watching it on DVD uh, during season one, or just after season one had come out on DVD. And then uh, I've been watching it consistently since then. And then uh, just before the finale, the final season was picking up, we rewatched every season except season five. We rewatched all of the first four seasons. And I don't think anybody's going to blame you for that. No, I know. Yeah, unfortunately, there, if there's one point of consensus about Justified, I would say it's that we kind of all agree that season five was a bit of a downturn and a misstep. But most people seem to agree that season six kind of got picked back up, you know, the steam and the, the character and the momentum of the show. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. I really... I, I mean, I just I just watched the finale two nights ago, I think. So I probably am still closer to it even than you guys are. So I may end up just sort of rambling about the finale at some point. But um, but no, I really I really dug season six. I I feel like I had to watch it in sort of um, like stops and goes. So I, I don't I'm still kind of making up my mind about the whole season. But I did really love it, and I really love the way that they ended it. Well, we've already had our say about the finale. What what are your thoughts? Go ahead, ramble away. Ramble away. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think, and and for, I haven't had a chance to listen to what you guys said about it, so forgive me if I repeat uh, anything there. But I think that, I mean, I don't know. Everyone right from the the end of season five was sort of talking about, oh, you know, like who's going to die, who's going to be killed uh, towards the end of season six, and. I don't know. My reaction to that was always like, why do we have to assume that someone is going to die? I mean, I, I, so I was like, I don't want Raylan to kill Boyd. I don't want Boyd to kill. I don't want any of that to happen. And um, I think there was a chunk in the middle of season six where I was, I was feeling like it was sort of the show was kind of forcing that that feeling that we should sort of be separating ourselves from either one character or the other. We should either be allowing Raylan to become kind of a a rogue figure or turning Boyd into a kind of I don't know, irredeemable killer in the way that he had never been in order to kind of set us up for the fact that one of them was going to have to go away. Um, and also Ava as well there. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure how I was, if I was thrilled about that. Um, and I think that when, when the show really ended with that season, that, that final scene of Boyd and Raylan together, um, I just think it was, it was absolutely the perfect tribute to the kind of nature of the show and the fact that the show has been so interested in, I don't know, this idea of what makes a modern day Western. And uh, because you invited me to ramble, Kate, I'm going to ramble just a little bit then Go about this. But I, I, I looked it. up, um, <laughs> I looked up a, 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 an article that I'd read a couple of years ago called uh, The Westerner by a writer named Robert Warshaw. And I'm not sure if people are familiar with him. He was one of the really early kind of film, big deal film critics in the 50s and 60s, I believe. Um, anyway, he has this really wonderful article called The Western, where he kind of breaks down and analyzes all the different ways that the Western works uh, and sort of talks about the figure of the cowboy. Um, and he has all of these sort of great lines where uh, he talks about things like... Uh, the idea that we kind of want to say, oh, well, the cowboy is like fighting for justice and order. But he, his point is, well, not really. Justice and order becomes an excuse for the cowboy to exist. Really, they just sort of are on that side of it. What the cowboy is really doing is kind of fighting for their own image, like fighting for their right to determine 
who they are themselves and kind of make that statement about it. And I think that Justified has done such an interesting job of really playing up that angle that Boyd, Raylan is really, has so much in common with this kind of set of criminals in Kentucky that he grew up with and that he knows there is so little differentiating him from those figures, except that he happens to be on the side of the law and that, but really that doesn't mean as much in the show as you might think it does. It really just becomes a way for Raylan to kind of work out his own set of rules and his own right to determine what he thinks is right or wrong. It's less about following some kind of preset idea of law. And the same goes for Boyd, right? I mean, the show did such a great job of kind of keeping that tension in play of us never knowing exactly who we were supposed to be on board with and, and kind of creating that level of uncomfortability when the show would become very violent and people would be killed en masse. And, and we just sort of had to work that out for ourselves, our own reaction to it. Anyway, so to sum up, I love the fact that it ends with Boyd and Raylan still kind of looking across from each other through a window, right, separating them. I just thought that was such a perfect summary of what I've loved about the show. It heightens the the theme of duality between the two of them, like you say. And I love that idea of... Um, I'm going to have to go read that article. Um, because, it's great. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And um, I've actually been thinking a lot about the uh, supernatural as a modern Western. And mm-hmm. and I think that there's some interesting parallels there as well. So I'm going to have to go ponder on that further. But, um, yeah, like you say, the, these are you know, there are these themes that have run throughout the whole series of um, with Raylan, this idea of the road not traveled, like what if Arlo hadn't been his dad or what if, you know, Arlo had been his dad, but had been a bit less of a bastard to him. Would he have been another Boyd or what if, um, you know, if he, if one of these shootouts, you know, that he keeps finding his way into at the start of the season and really through season one a lot, um, if one of them goes sideways or if he isn't deemed as having been justified, where does that put him? And that, how that ties in with these themes of fathers and sons and, and shared history and the land and this home of, of Harlan. I mean, I, I really like, you know, the, and we talked about this last week, the way that it comes down to that's that final shot of these two men who are so similar um, in so many ways. And yet fundamentally so different. And, and like you say, by not, having them kill each other it also says a lot about the progression of the series um do you have any thoughts simon uh so many so many thoughts um (laughs) to me the the end of justified has really um shone a light on the biases that people have um when when they talk about what great tv is uh, because it's always existed in this in this no man's land somewhere in between disreputable genre television and prestige drama. It, it kind of flirted with prestige drama back in season two when everyone perked up because of Margot Martindale. Uh, but then, of course, when it reverted to when, or when it seemingly reverted uh, in some people's eyes, to just being a silly genre show uh, in season three, it sort of it lost that uh, that shiny, that prestige shininess, I guess you could say. And what I one of the many, many things I love about the show is that it absolutely uh, services all those themes that we were already talking about, um, but it never ever lost sight of being an entertainment uh, ever. It was there was n- there was not one single episode I would say even in season five that didn't have some moment of wit or cleverness or uh, or just unexpected uh, unexpected sources of of entertainment. Um, I, I don't think the show was ever totally worthless. It definitely. Uh, the season five dip exists. Um, 
I think that people misappropriated the reasons for that dip uh, to a few different places. And maybe we can talk about why why season five wasn't as good. Maybe, maybe we don't want to do that. <laughs> but um, we have to we have to choose oh. our, our, our we have to choose our time allotment carefully. We're gonna talk about it a little bit because I okay. can't not rant about that. Um, and I gotta get Kate's thoughts. But Simon, go ahead and please continue. But uh, I'm also really impressed in retrospect with the way that every single season is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you would think that for a show that is about a lawman going out and doing his job, I mean, that's basically the, the outline of the show, um, th- that would be a, a, a repetitive thing to do for 78 episodes. Uh, but it really isn't because every season is formally different, structurally different, tonally different, uh, and sometimes like wildly different. And of course, the the rogues gallery that changes up has a lot to do with that. But uh, the, you have to give credit to the to the writing team. It's pretty much the same writing team for the whole show, and uh, maybe it helped that they were able to keep that that same roster uh, with that with with that sort of collective knowledge that they didn't want to repeat themselves. Okay, I want to jump in here with the two my two biggest frustrations with Justified right now. And when I say with Justified. I mean, with the conversation around it that's happening, there's been so much conversation with this finale, and it's been great to to watch the show that you know we were such proponents of back in the season. I, I you know it took me a while to catch up with it, um, but I finally did. You're ur- urging Simon, um, the show that we loved and we were praising every single week, um, and that was just one of our favorite shows on TV. It feels like finally it's getting some some accolades here in uh, at the end of its run. It's great, been great to see. However, there are two pieces of conventional wisdom that have just been accepted by pretty much every critic I can think of. And it's driving me nuts in this conversation post finale. And those are that number one, season two is clearly and far away the best season. And it's just not even a conversation um, because, you know, because of Mags and because Margaret Martindale is so amazing. And the second thing is, is that that bastard Michael Rappaport ruined season five. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and neither one of those things is true. Um, and they just, they, it's not all, all, only that, that, that neither one of those two things is true for me. It's that they are so patently not true that it's very frustrating to, to see so few critics engage with that as a topic. If you, you know, I, I completely understand that people love season two and they think it's the best season, but to just dismiss any notion that it could be, you know, maybe all the terrible stuff they had going on with, with Nona and with Ava, all the, the corners of the show that just were completely a mess. Uh, those, those that's worthy of a conversation. Or how about season five? Some of the things that they did well, or, or the fact that, you know, Ava in prison had nothing to do with Michael Rappaport. Um, and that was much more about the writing. At least that's what I think. We've gone on about this on the podcast before, so I have a sense of what Simon thinks about this. But, Kate, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, my guess is that I'm probably pretty in line with both what you and Simon uh, think about this. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I really just don't have as much time as I would like to to keep up with the kind of critical conversations about these shows. And so to, to hear that, like, everyone else is saying, oh, season two is obviously the best is really funny because I mostly just talk about this show with, like, Simon <laughs> and my husband. <laughs> and we're, we're pretty much in agreement that um, season four is is my favorite, I would say. Season four is probably my favorite favorite season um three i have i have mixed feelings on three a little bit mostly just because it is so much more violent and dark than some of the other seasons and there are things about that that i'm fine with and then things in there that i'm mildly uncomfortable with and 
it's interesting kind of Simon that you're making this argument about it being sort of a genre piece and that's where you really get this sort of true to the roots of it kind of element in that season and I can see some of that and I agree with it but I I do think that season four is really my favorite and I think that part of it has to do with something I didn't mention so much when I was talking about the finale but that's really the season four is where you start to get, um, for me, is where you start to get the kind of storyline of Ava really playing in as a third pole in the show, oh, interestingly, against Raylan and Boyd, and the sense that, I mean, the show, you know, quite obviously really struggled with what to do with, like, the character of Winona, right? And that same problem that we see all the time now in prestige television, where, you know, it's like television studies is just catching up to things that, that film has been talking about for a long, long time, of this idea that, you know, these spaces that get created where the the realm of action is the male realm, you know, where everything, we're out shooting things, we're out solving crime, all that stuff, and that's the male realm. And then the way in which a woman might come in as a main character is always as the wife. And that always comes in as the kind of force that slows down the action or works against the action. And it's interesting because in that article, Robert Warshaw talks about the exact same thing with the uh, woman in the Western and her kind of pulling that same influence, this idea of the civilizing influence, the cowboy moves towards outlawdom and the woman is meant to be this sort of civilizing force. Um, so anyway, that's a long-standing problem in relation to kind of genre stuff. But the thing that I really love about Justified is on the one hand, you have Winona that they are maybe struggling with a little bit. But on the other hand, you have Ava, where the show really allows her to kind of grow more and more into a character where she is she is engaged in the action in a way that doesn't just turn her into another male, right? She doesn't just, a stereotypical male, she doesn't just pick up a sort of gun and start shooting at things. She really is engaged in her own set of problems about figuring out what kind of role she wants to play in this sort of criminal enterprise. Like, what makes the most sense for her to be engaged in here? How does she take care of herself? How does she stand up in this world? And I, for me, I found that really gratifying and I've always found her relationship with Boyd extremely gratifying in this show and I think that as as I think is fairly commonly agreed upon season five that's where this becomes such a problem is that Ava becomes this sort of victim figure and she's isolated from everyone else and it really takes a turn for the worse but then in season six we're back to having this great triangle again and sort of figuring out all that that means and anyway so that's a rambling way to say yes season four is great <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that, that, that's that's all not to say though that she doesn't shoot things or is, is oh no it, she's 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 quite fond of shooting things she does totally shoot things and I appreciate that but there's a difference I think there between what's going on in Justified versus something like what I suspect is going to happen in the next season of True Detective right where where you know in the previous season we had a female character who seemed to always just be outside of that world and was being inserted into it and in the next season from that horrible trailer they released. It looks like we've just had Rachel McAdams, you know, now we just have a third de detective who happens to be a woman, but is just going to be operating on exactly the same way as the men. And it just won't be any question of her gender at all. She'll just be, you know, wearing a gun and shooting things. And I, I'm not, I'm not crazy about that mode of solving the problem of the woman of, of gender in television and i think justified is doing it in a much more interesting way and i think simon you've even talked about this and you're writing the idea of it really kind of attending to the fact that there are different conditions for the women in this world right there are different pressures on them there are different ways that different questions that they're going to have to figure out as they make their way through this sort of criminal world and ellen may was another really fabulous character example of that that I really loved. Um, but anyway, that's enough talking now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Simon, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, so listeners will have a sense of your opinion on this as well. But I did want to give you a moment um, to, if you wanted to talk about season five, 
and how let's stop blaming Michael Rappaport. Any uh, thought, anything you want to add there or are you, are you good? My, my hypothesis for what went wrong in season five. Uh, first of all, penultimate seasons are almost never the best seasons. Um, that could be a, a theory that I just made up, but um, <laughs> it really felt like, like they, uh, like, like they found themselves at a loss of, 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 of what to do besides set up the end game. Um, I don't think Rappaport was great, uh, so I think he was maybe part of the problem, but certainly not uh, all of it. it. It had much more to do with the design of of the crows um, as as a as a family of characters. Although I did enjoy Danny quite a lot, um, I think it had to do. I think it may have had to do honestly with the death of Elmore Leonard, uh, maybe taking the wind out of their sails a little bit, and uh, I think uh, they were also just plagued with production problems, like uh, Eddie Gathigy. And other people having to leave early and then having to write around that, um, which also brings up another interesting thing that no one ever talks about, which is that compared to other shows of of its relative caliber, Justified has always struck me as being insanely low budget. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all it's just from what I from what I read, whenever I'm reading about the production of it, it always seems like they're doing everything on a shoestring, and uh, and credit is due to to the writers and also to to Timothy Oliphant who joined who joined on as a producer and I think season three and has always had a lot of, a, a lot of story input and who I was reading about his reaction to the finale uh, having just seen it. And he's like, not, he never seems totally satisfied. Like he, he, he never, he, he, he really, I think always wanted the show to be better than it was, which is not to say that he, that he didn't like it, but he was, he, I think he just always saw the stuff they could have done better and was always striving uh, along with everyone else. And that, that's what I liked. One of the many other things that I liked about Justified is it always felt like uh, it, it was, it was, it was sweating to, to make it look easy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, in season five, there are structural problems. Like you say, Simon, there's behind the scenes issues that complicated things. And, you know, I don't want to speak to the writer's state of mind, but certainly um, it lacks the, the the awareness maybe or the the it feels like they didn't have as strong a sense of the long structure or long game for the season like they did in season two in season three in season six season four too i mean like like in season two when you watch that premiere at least to me watching it it was very clear to me that the season was going to end with mags drinking some apple pie there's just a clear delineation to that watching the season five premiere because I remember, I remember distinctly when we were talking about it on the podcast, Simon, you were nervous. And I said, oh, no, no, no. There's no way that the crows <laughs> can function as a season-long villain. Like, that's clear. That's obvious. And so these writers are going to obviously address that. And there's something else coming because that can't possibly sustain itself. Um, and it seems like they got some really good ideas going. And there is a lot, actually, that I enjoy about season five. But that that clarity of vision for the season or even like in season three, there's sort of these mini arcs I feel was lacking in season five. And that's what I would point to more than a particular actor. Um, so now I'm, I'll get down off my soapbox. Shall we talk about some of the things that we really like about uh, justified? Uh, well, to, to sort of just pivot the conversation entirely. Uh, I think people forget about season one sometimes um, because it's so I, I, I mentioned that all the seasons are different, but season one is maybe the most different because except for a little bit at the end, uh, it's almost entirely episodic uh, with, with the, with the through line of, of Boyd, I guess, and Bo. And uh, it's so, great. 
I love and season it's, one. It's, season one is so effing fun and entertaining. And uh, it's funny, you, uh, Kate, you, uh, Kate Randebaum, rather, you were talking about how, how much more dark and violent uh, season three is. Um, technically speaking, I would say season three is definitely darker, but season one is so insanely violent. Uh, like, Raylan is blowing up, is like blowing brains out of skulls in basically every episode. Uh, the finale is called Bulletville, and probably, and I think between the woods and uh, and the actual place of Bulletville, there's probably like thirty bodies dropped or something. It's it's insane. And then after that season, they 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 sort of gradually ratchet down the violence, which is kind of unheard of for any genre show, I think. Well, Raylan matures a little bit, which is you know nice to see. He he realizes, and I think the writers also realize they can't just keep having him kill people eventually <laughs> he would you know lose his job but i think that's an excellent point any thoughts kate yeah um yeah i don't know there's a there's a lot to think about there is season uh it's season one right where you have the sequence where um boyd has started the like religious group out the woods and the father yeah. kills all of them yeah that's season one mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know i mean it, it's interesting there's a lot to think about there because there there is a way in which when when I was watching season one, and it was interesting to rewatch it, but because it was more episodic and because, you know, the first time you see it, you're not really sure where it's going to go. There is almost a way in which, despite the fact that the violence is quite high, it almost feels like the stakes are a little bit lower around it, particularly in relation to Raylan, because the show is still kind of figuring out its own, like, generic framework almost in the sense of, like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there is there is a way in which the sort of genre of the Western almost really allows for and expects there to be like a certain number of kind of like, you know, killings of outlaws on a pretty regular basis. And the show has really kind of like played that up sometimes to humorous effect, which is a dangerous, you know, line to get close to um, when you're kind of promoting like violence (laughs) so Mm -hmm. clearly. But again, I do think that the show, once it gets maybe through that first season and when it starts to really kind of find its legs in these longer form of seasons, um, and it starts to really have, as you say, Kate, like have to grapple with what it means to have Raylan uh, shooting people. There, There is a, like, again, and I'm going to keep going back to that article, but the um, in the Robert Warshaw article, he talks about, he's comparing the idea of the Western to uh, the gangster genre. And he says that sort of the power of the gangster genre and the gangster in that though, those films comes out of the fact that, like, he's always the, he's the most willing to lose control. Like he's the, the gangster is the fr- one, the most willing to shoot, the most willing to go too far. Um, all that stuff. You never know what he's going to do. Whereas for the cowboy in the Western, it's, it's a bit of a different um, sense. Like the idea that the whole, the cowboy, his whole reason for being comes down to that moment of him being willing to shoot someone, even though it kind of gets close to being, that's the moment where the cowboy gets closest to becoming an outlaw, right? Is when he takes the law into his own hands, when he has to act on behalf of the law. And that's that like really dangerous moment. And because it is sort of the whole moment for the cowboy's being in that space, um, it, it almost has to be kept pure. Like it can't be used too kind of excessively in the Western. And there's a moment, I think you're right here, where like the show starts to figure that out and they need to start giving those moments more power and it's almost like the show then starts to build up to these scenes where Raylan is going to have to decide you know in that way the show even though it, it, there always is a kind of long-term villain in each of the seasons for me the most interesting arcs have always been where the question is really of Raylan as his own worst enemy right like Raylan's dark side this attraction to maybe crossing over the other side and kind of figuring that out and it always culminating around these sequences of 
of these shootings, of these killings. And the Nikki Augustine um, bit in season three is the one that everyone points to. Is season like four. Season four, sorry. Season, no, is it? Yeah. yeah season Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. I'm losing my mind. Um, season four. So that that part there is, I think, a really interesting moment, right, where Raylan possibly gets the closest that he does to kind of crossing that line. And I think maybe that has something to do as well with the fact that season five maybe struggles a little bit to find its footing again in the wake of that. I don't know. Well, and, I, you know, there are certain moments that you can watch Raylan struggling with that. Uh, when you were comparing the violence or the um, the darkness of season one versus season three season three also has a lot more terror and not just Mm -hmm. killing so you have um the quarrels character has someone chained up that he's just torturing and raping constantly off screen and you know that off screen well but but like that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that we don't have anything in season one there's nothing like that in season one and so while it may not be a number of bodies there's a it's a lot darker in that you know in that sense but when you know I'm... there's also the gary thing oh yeah that's true yes gary. yes that is true um um but there are certain benchmarks for raylan over the course of the series and one that always sticks with me is when he shoots maggie lawson and that's the first woman that mm-hmm. he's probably ever shot and it takes him back i mean he, he has to he doesn't want to do it but he has to and it really seems to stick with him. And there are a number of those throughout the the, se- the series. And when you talk about Nikki Augustine, it really feels like part of season five is Raylan gone to seed. I mean, his hair is, is longer. He's not really taking care of himself the same way. And part of that probably ties back to that decision he makes with Nikki Augustine. Whether or not the writers made the most of, of that material, I would have to rewatch season five to say. But I do think that that is part of his journey and a... Um, definite element of the show that also ties into the only part of season five that i think consistently works which is the relation the relationship between rail and art yeah Uh, there's some really great stuff uh in in their scenes uh i I maintain there's enough in that season for a a solid movie but um to to go back to stuff uh, kate was saying uh kate brennebaum was saying about (laughs) uh about Raylan and his code and uh, and potentially breaking it. One of my favorite threads, especially in the last few seasons, is people who aren't Raylan, uh, especially people who are theoretically above him, trying to make sense of, of him mm. and and especially the perception that he's dirty, mm. which which he's not. But it's very easy to like when when the Stephen Tobolowsky character shows up in season three. Uh, and they have that that wonderful couple episodes where Raylan is under investigation and has to wriggle out from under it, which is also, by the way, when that season completely redeems the stuff they did with Winona in the previous season, which yeah. I loved. Um, uh, you know, whenever they do something like that, it's like, yeah, they're wrong, but they're not that wrong. Hmm. Well, that's I mean, that's what's so I love about this idea of like Raylan's job. I mean, I, when I was rereading that that article about of the westerner it was it was interesting to see he talks a lot about this idea of the the cowboy as as par excellence a man of leisure like he's never he of course technically has employment usually right he's usually like a sheriff or or maybe something like that but he always sort of feels like he's unemployed i mean there's never any there's never any real pressure on him to kind of an outside source the idea is that he is his own motivator he's his own set of rules his own guide there isn't any looking to an outside source to tell him what to do and and that does i I do think that they play that really really 
well in the television show, right? I mean, the idea that the closest Raylan ever gets to kind of dealing with someone outside of him and looking to them is art, right? There is moments where art sort of is able to have some kind of impact on Raylan, and that's where the show kind of plays up this idea of art being maybe the replacement father figure for... Um, Oh, I'm forgetting his real Arlo. name, Arlo. Um, but and and that is interesting. But that's not the same as like as as Raylan having a job that he has to do. I mean, you never get any sense that Raylan really is doing these things because he actually gives a crap about like the U.S. Marshal Service and its mandate, and like he's getting paid, so he has to follow through on something. The show really plays it very interestingly in the sense that. We really, we know that the U.S. Marshal Service is kind of an excuse for Raylan to be this man that he wants to be, which is to participate in things like shooting people and things like kind of getting to lock people in the trunk if he feels like they're misbehaving. Um, and the job is really just the thing that allows him to do that. And I, and I do, I do love that a lot about the show. <laughs> well, we are almost out of time. <laughs> of course we are. We just mentioned Arlo for the first time. We've not discussed Mags at all. Uh, we've not <laughs> mentioned, you know, uh, the Drusitania. We've not said Win Duffy. There's a lot we haven't talked about yet. So uh, we're going to go through a couple lists here really quickly. I want each of you to say you can do up to three favorite episodes, favorite oh, lines, and or your choice of how many of these you want to do uh favorite moments or or characters bit characters so who wants to go first Ooh, i'll go okay, um, okay well i mean i'm gonna be i'll be the first to say decoy because it's like the ultimate justified episode damn you simon i was gonna <laughs> i know everyone knows decoy is the best episode of just no they don't apparently uh, well but we do because it is <laughs> we do um people will say the season two finale and they'll be wrong um Though it's very, very good. We do it's, love it's season very two. Good. It's amazing. Um, but, you know, Decoy's I better. would say um, Decoy is so far and away the best episode that I will just leave that. Like, I don't really think of Justified as an episode show. I think of it more as a, as a moments yeah. show and a character's show. So in terms of moments, uh, the showdown between Raylan and Fletcher Nix in the season three premiere, mm -hmm. I think is the best standoff they ever did. Um and actually, the the culmination of the twenty one foot rule in season five is also a great moment. Uh, let's let's not forget that they did that in that season. Um, God, uh, I feel like I, I I need to mention a few character actors because uh, Justified is all is powered by character actors. Um, Mike O'Malley in season four was just amazing and came out of nowhere. Um, God, uh, Neil McDonough will never get enough respect for having to follow up. Uh, mags and doing a great job and just being totally ignored for it um god who else do i need i'll, I'll, I'll mention one more person before i move on to, to to k ren um i'll give it to uh uh loretta i gotta mm. give it to loretta um caitlin deaver watching her um it was such a great idea to bring her back for the last run of episodes and uh, and to to you, that you get to to watch her maturation, and the fact that they didn't uh, tame her, or or like make her uh, make her any more like quote unquote sympathetic or whatever, uh, was such a great choice. And Caitlin Deaver just knocked it out of the park. How about you, Kate? What do you have? All right, okay, I'm gonna try to do this quickly. So again, I don't think I'm very good at coming up with these kinds of 
list slash moments, but here's here's what I got. So um, in terms of moments that really stick out for me in the show, um, I think there's probably two that my brain always wants to go back to. And the first one is the moment for some reason where Boyd and Ava get together for the first time. They're at the, by that pickup truck. So I don't know what it is about that moment, but I love that scene in the show. I just think it's done so smartly and so well. And it's just the height of these kind of two characters. I love that sequence. Anyway, that's one. And then the other one is um, the moment where I think I'm not even gonna be able to remember what season it is, if it's three or four, but it's where Raylan is sitting in his chair outside of his house at the end of the season. And he's looking at Arlo's gravestone and then he looks over and he sees his own gravestone looking back at him. I just think that that was, again, another moment, like the height of the show. That's season um, four. It is season four, okay. Um, and the, the characters, uh, again, you guys have already listed so many that I really love, but I would again say Ellen May is just one of my favorite characters. I love Ellen May. Um, I, Johnny Crowder too had his moments. He's an interesting character, but I think the one that is sticking out for me most recently is probably the character of Choo Choo. And I think part of the reason why I liked Choo Choo so much is he was such a great example in the show of the way that, I don't know, Justified always brought, I think, a level of kind of, I don't know, respect for its character, for these kind of characters who could very easily become just sort of easy jokes on another show, right? Like kind of background figures who are sort of stupid or they're stupid criminals or whatever, and we know they're going to die, so who cares? But I think, like, Juju, the level of kind of sadness involved in that character, I, I just thought it was such a remarkable thing for someone who's only really in the show for, I don't know, something like four or five episodes. Um, okay, and then but the last thing I'll say really quickly is just after having rewatched uh, the show kind of in quick succession here, I think the moments that really stood out for me were noticing just how much the kind of current economic landscape of the United States was really playing in as I think a really important figure in the background. So you often have characters kind of talking about what's going on in the way that, that people in America at this time are kind of thinking about the law and legality and the way that relates to money and like capitalism and earning money. And I, I always just thought that those were such genius moments and really brings a like a fascinating level to this idea that Kentucky is the place where this show has to go to find something like a frontier, you know, the way that the West would have been the frontier in a real Western. Here we have this idea of kind of borderline lawlessness um, of the kind of 2000s and law breaking down. And that's the, where we have to go to find a frontier. Anyway, that's the last thing I'll say. Back to you guys. <laughs> um, for episodes, the one that I always go to that I know the, the episode title of and that I immediately think of is decoy. So Simon's already said enough about that, but that'll be my episode pick um, for quotes. Guys, it's a piggy bank. <laughs> That's just one of my favorite quotes of television. Uh, also next one's coming faster. Yes. <laughs> and the reaction to that. And then um, there are there are any number of other ones, but uh, and, and then I was, I'll give it to Drusitania and that sequence as well. Um, but there are so many fabulous uh, quotes, the dialogue and the 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 back and forth, just the uh, the rhythm of Justified is one of its biggest mm -hmm. strengths um, for characters. Uh, some some character shout outs here. Uh, we already mentioned uh, the Fletcher Nix character. Um, but let's, let's give some love to Steven Root and his red, uh, thong love and judge. Um, let's also give a little love to the, to the Bennett crew. Um, I enjoyed Dickie Bennett and Jeremy Davies mm -hmm. a lot more in season two than when he just got heightened, 
more and more twitchy and heightened as the series went on. I think that was a deliberate choice. I just don't know that I loved it. Um, and uh, and then I'll, I'll uh, wrap it up with, um, again, we've talked about her a bit, but Winona and Natalie Z do not get anywhere near the respect that they deserve. Um, so there we go. Uh, oh, and I guess another one that I just did, I have to make sure I mention because we did mention Choo Choo, but we got to mention Colt as well. The young yeah. Gerard Depardieu, as it were. <laughs> yeah, because when we talk about dec- Decoy, when I talk about season four, this will be my... my um, uh, this will be one of my last thoughts. <laughs> I've, I just thought of another one. Uh, the other one, really quickly, there are a few characters that did not, actors that did not get enough to do, that they that were wasted, that is still a little frustrating to me. One is Romy Rosemont, showed up for one or two episodes as a, a, a defense attorney and then disappeared or got her arm cut off or something. Um, another is um, Jim Beaver, who had a lot of time, but nowhere near enough, uh, I would say, good enough material for him they got like one really great speech and then most of the time because they were trying to not tip their hand in season four they didn't actually give him enough to do i would say um and the other one is alan tudyk we've talked about that before on the podcast um but my final thought uh because i've talked a bunch today about why uh the fact that i love season four and that i think it's the best the show's been and season two is not and i've said a little bit about why i think season two is not the best season despite the towering performance of margaret martindale and the writing of the of that character along with the progression of Boyd over that season um but you know because we there's the one Winona stuff and the Ava stuff that doesn't really work in season four the Drew Thompson arc takes a while to get going but you have you have Winona and Raylan's arc which is fantastic you have Boyd and Ava's arc culminating in that beautiful proposal scene one of the show's best scenes you have uh Tim finally getting something to do first time we've mentioned him or, you know, Rachel, in uh, getting a fabulous arc uh, paralleling with Colt and culminating in Decoy and, and the way that plays out. You also get the introduction of Constable Bob, who I think is a fantastic recurring character. The way that all these different threads come together, along with the death of Arlo and that that culmination of um, as much as it does, as much as left is unresolved, of Raylan and Arlo's relationship. Um, I think it just all comes together to make a beautiful, fantastic, very cohesive season of television. And so that is why I think season four is the best season. Um, any final thoughts, Kate or Simon? Uh, I just love this show so much. <laughs> I, I, have, I have two quick final thoughts. One of them is thought provoking. The other is really stupid. Um, the first, uh, we all know that Boyd was supposed to die um in the pilot can you just take a second in your brain you don't need need to say anything out loud take a second and imagine what the show would be like in its fifth or sixth season with without boyd i don't think it would have gone that far i don't think you can imagine what it would be without boyd because he's so it's so shaped the show yeah i know i'm just i'm just saying throw it out there listeners just think about that for a minute because it almost happened um, the other thing I want to mention is that the show was originally called Lawman, or it was going to be, and uh, they had to change it because of the Steven Seagal reality show Lawman. And uh, when I told this to Derek Gladu shortly after, uh, shortly after it premiered, Derek Gladu, uh, formerly of the Doctor Who podcast, um, he said, "Well, that's an easy rewrite. You get to the scene where he has the shooting, and and someone asks him about it, and he says, oh, it was Lawman.'" <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Nice. Uh, Kate, any final thoughts or are you good? I, I would just say, I don't know, man, when that when we got to that final scene on the last episode, I was 
I just, I was pretty heartbroken. I really, I, there is something about this show, like the quality of writing and the quality of their performances that really makes you feel like you're going to miss these people. Like, I know they're not real people, but man, I'm going to miss getting to like look forward to hearing things come out of Boyd Crocker's mouth. I just, the way that that guy can make words sound is so magical. Well, <laughs> anyway. It, it was, I believe it was Elmore Leonard who said, I don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth, but I love to hear him say it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Well, um, so that we haven't um, not said it, Limehouse. Mm. Limehouse. No, Noble's Holler was a thing on the show that we really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that's the last corner of the show that is glaringly missing from the podcast that at least we've mentioned. Um, so now we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Kate, so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.